Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? It's cold here in South Carolina, but I'm doing fine. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Every year, the daylight saving hits me very hard, and we've gotten very early sub-freezing uh, temperatures, which is very troubling, but it is an exciting time to be a fan of movies, so you can just go ahead and take refuge in the movie theaters playing some of uh, the great offerings that we get this time of year. And two of the best reviewed movies we are going to talk about later, Parasite and The Lighthouse. But first, a couple bits of movie news. I know, Jonathan, you are not traditionally a fan of superhero movies, but we got some great bit of casting from the Matt Reeves Batman movie that is coming up with Robert Pattinson in it which has cast Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, Paul Dano as the Riddler, Colin Farrell as the Penguin, and Andy Serkis is in talks to play Alfred Pennyworth. I know you're not a fan of superhero movies, but that is like one of the better casts you could assemble for a superhero movie. Will it be enough to get you to buy a ticket for a Batman movie? Well, for example, when The Last Jedi came out, I wasn't excited so much for another Star Wars film. I was excited for a Rian Johnson film starring Oscar Isaacs, Laura Dern, Carrie Fisher, and on and on and on, like Benicio Del Toro. So I think of it in that way. It's like I wasn't excited for Black Panther so much as a big budget film directed by uh, Ryan Coogler mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, Michael, you know, like all these actors, really, really good actors, Angela Bassett and, uh, I want to say Michael Jordan. What's his name? Michael, Michael B. Michael Jordan. B. Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of good actors. So that's the way I look at it, you know. And I like a number of comic book films. I just uh, – I like to have a vision behind them and not so much the ones that seem like they're corporate products that are made by committee. For me, the Paul Dano casting is, like, inspired. I feel like he is just going to bring another sort of level to a superhero movie we have not seen before. And may, I mean, there have been people like Jesse Eisenberg in the horrible Superman movies, but Paul Dana is one of the better working actors. Him and Robert Pattinson in the same movie, also with Zoe Kravitz and Colin Farrell. That is hopefully really, really good. Hopefully it's that awful, awful movie like the previous <laughs> DC Batman movies we've got. Uh, but one of the sort of more uh, hitting of the zeitgeist topics since we last recorded, I don't want to spend too much time on this because... I have a feeling I know what your opinion about it is going to be. But news came out that James Dean is to be recreated via CGI for the Vietnam War drama Finding Jack. Is this like your ultimate nightmare come fulfilled? (laughs) Well, it's cinematic grave robbing. I mean, (laughs) they did it about 15 years ago with Laurence Olivier and Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow. They did it with Fred Astaire, I think, with a dancing with a vacuum in a commercial it's i mean they say oh we have the family's permission that we have the rights to it but that doesn't make it okay james <laughs> dean is dead uh he can't agree to be in a film we don't know that he would want to be in this film i mean i don't mind necessarily doing something like having carrie fisher uh appear to some degree in a star wars film after she tragically unexpectedly died I mean, that's kind of different, but to have someone 60-plus years after they died... I mean, he's been gone about 60 years, yeah. I think. Um, <laughs> like 1955, so I think, is when he died, yeah. 
I mean, it kind of connects to the Irishman with the use of makeup and de-aging the actors. It's like we're going to get to the point where we don't even need actors. And I know the guy who directed American History X, he's making a film starring an AI robot as the lead quote-unquote actor. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's intriguing what they can do with technology, but there's a Un, there's a uncomfortable like creepiness to that. I mean, it, it, even if it looks really amazing, it's creepy. It's just it's 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 unethical and it's creepy. Don't you think? Oh, totally. And my sort of conspiracy brain thinking on this is that this movie is never even going to come out. Like it, it doesn't even have a, a Wikipedia page at this point. I feel like this is just people trying to get their names in the news and them talking about or it won't come out in the way people are picturing it with like james dean from rebel without a cause you know red jacket and all showing up in a vietnam movie so i think this is more than anything just people trying to get their name in the news and trying to get you know some sort of funding there's just like no way that this is like cost effective way to cast someone is like resurrecting james dean from the dead and having him play what seems to be like the second or third lead in an ensemble movie. So, until I actually see it with my own eyes, I, like, can't believe this is actually even going to be true. So, hopefully, this is just, like, hearsay and, and craziness and that this actually doesn't end up being made. Um, one bit of uh, intriguing news is, I would say, the best director under 50, Paul Thomas Anderson. It was announced that his next film is going to start shooting early next year. And it's about a high school kid in the 1970s. That's what the headline Made says. Made me think of Days so, of Confused. Uh, we get Paul Thomas Anderson's Days of Confused. <laughs> it probably won't end up being like that at all, but that is just where my brain went. Right. I mean, you you... You have this fantasy of what if people like Darren Aronofsky and Paul Thomas Anderson and Alexander Payne made two or three movies every year like they did in the Hollywood system. That would be amazing. But, you know, Woody Allen and Takashi Miike are pretty much the only ones that do an average of a film a year. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's it's sad then, like, Alexander Payne, like, went seven years between Sideways and The Descendants. It's And, like, David Fincher... He has, uh, we mentioned before, I think, that he's doing a black-and-white biopic about the making of Citizen Kane. He hasn't done a movie since Gone Girl, yeah. and that's been almost, like, five years. He's only thing. made TV episodes yeah. of Mindhunter. That's the only place you can go for, yeah. for new David Fincher in, like, the last seven years, which is pretty wild. But yeah. uh, one thing I saw that probably got piqued your interest was Oscar Isaac is going to star in Paul Schrader's next film titled The Card Counter. That seems like a match made in heaven. A star with writer-director. Uh, he made First Reformed, which came out uh, last year and was one of both of our favorite movies to come out last year. And probably will have a prominent position My in number one. the best films of the decade that will make an appearance later this year. Uh, but I don't know too much about what this movie is going to be, but it's good to see Paul Schrader already has a movie coming up to follow what was like his best movie in a very long time first reformed so hopefully he finds a nice rich vein of form right. with his filmmaking well uh so one of my film critic friends on uh either facebook or twitter said that it would be completely in keeping with paul schrader to turn around after doing first reformed and doing an utterly shitty film <laughs> like the canyons i mean i shouldn't i haven't seen that one but he he's been a very 
uh, uneven filmmaker. You know, he's had some really incredible films. Like a man of uncompromising vision, which may not be necessarily a vision shared by people who aren't himself. <laughs> right. Well, uh, which film do you want to review first, uh, The Lighthouse or Parasite? I think They're we need to start can, with right? uh, with Parasite. Yeah, that is an, an interesting little double feature. We got a can double feature, and I actually saw both of these movies on the same day. Uh, it had some very troubling dreams uh, <laughs> afterwards. It's both sort of movies that crawl inside of your head and refuse to leave. Uh, so I think we should start with Parasite because it's a little more palatable out of the two. Uh, uh, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, it, it takes disturbing turns, but it's a very watchable movie. It's very entertaining, and even if you're off put by violence, it's one of those that it, it it's very it's used uh, briefly in the film, impactfully, and it does get pretty violent, but it. So yeah, Parasite isn't uh, a bloodbath. Directed by Bong Joon-ho, who I know you're a big fan of. The only movie I've seen by him previously is Okja, which was a Netflix release a couple years ago. But he also did Snowpiercer in the English language and The Host, which was one of his early movies in Korea. Parasite is set in Korea. It is uh, not in English, although uh, we get some English interspersed throughout. It is about a young man from an extremely poor household who cons his way into becoming the tutor to a girl from an extremely wealthy family, uh, leading to his parents and sister also infiltrating also infiltrating the lives of this extremely wealthy family. It premiered May 21st at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the competition's highest prize, the Palme d'Or. It was released October 11th in the USA and is now playing nationwide a Metacritic score of 95 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 99. Easily one of the best-reviewed movies of the year so far. It sounds like you liked it. I was completely enthralled by this movie. This was one of the more original movies I've seen in a long time. And one of the movies where I was watching it had just no idea what the next 10 minutes was going to look like. It was completely surprising at almost every turn. Uh, and it was just a completely wholly original movie, like very few things I've seen in a long time. Parasite totally blew me away. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Uh, <laughs> would, I mean, how what, what did you think of Parasite, Bong Joon-ho? Palm Door winner. It, it fit into the category of movies I call Watchmen movies. It's a director in total command of their craft, doing exactly what they want to. I think of uh, Sam Ike's, uh Black Swan. It's just, you don't know exactly where the film's going, but the director has such a strong vision. Every piece of the filmmaking. But yeah, like you were saying, it is definitely like a Watch Me kind of movie by okay. Bong Joon-ho, where he is very much in control of what he is doing. And I've read some of the stuff about, like, the background of this movie, and it started off him just, like, giving a flippant idea to, like, his production assistant who took all these notes about Korean families and presented him with, like, a screenplay. And he was like, oh, there's some interesting stuff in this, and just came up with it. And he just seems like a very unique director in his approach to, uh, you know, just his topics and the way he goes about making movies. But this is definitely like a watch me sort of one with is like overwhelming with the cinematic techniques he throws at us and is just so suspenseful and watchable uh, throughout it. 
but yeah, you were saying you're a big fan of uh, Bong Joon-ho. How do you think this compares uh, to the rest of his movies? I just saw it earlier today, so it's hard always to rank. You know, it's like after I saw The Irishman, it's like, how good is it compared to Goodfellas? I don't know. I don't know where to put it. I, I really like Mother a lot. That was my second favorite film of that year. Uh, I had a great time seeing The Host because I went to see it in New York City on one of my first trips there. And I told my mom, Mom, I really, really want to go see this South Korean giant mutant slug movie. It's got really good reviews. And she's like, oh, okay. And we went to see it. And it is a really good monster film. And afterwards, I said, well, it's the best South Korean giant mutant slug movie ever. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a movie that... This is a much less weird movie than something like that. Much more approachable. Yeah, it gets dark and twisted, but it doesn't ever get... There There are revelations that come up throughout the film, and there are shocking moments towards the end. But it's just... Uh, uh, it's it's a film that's all at one location. And, the I, I mean, the film should get nominated for Best Production Design. That oh. house is just brilliantly constructed in the the use of space uh in i mean like on a film set which i couldn't believe because like the way it's shot inside like the neighborhoods and everything it just seemed like such a lived-in sort of place like you never questioned for a second that this movie is like an artifice it very much felt like a real thing and you were seeing real things happening which is a real credit to the movie because as stylized as it is and how sometimes uh different from a normal reality uh, the movie is like it very much feels like something that's happening before your very eyes. It is something that is really going on in the world. I really, really admire uh, a film that takes you in unexpected directions. But it, I mean, I would call the film Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. But I think it definitely just plays beautifully. Like you just sit there, you're just you're just sitting there enjoying your circle. Oh, this is being weighted, and I love it. It's just so entertaining. Yeah, you just you get off on being. Uh, taken on a ride in in such a masterful way and it's a really basic sort of premise uh, a really really simple setup where it's just you know poor family envies rich family and wants that sort of lifestyle and you know you come to understand that the people who have all the money there isn't much that makes them better or different than the poor people it's just the different circumstances that you know they exist in and just how the different sort of things are turned on their head. You don't want to spoil too much because the revelations that come out in this movie really are very surprising. And I think if you knew them going into it, it would take away your enjoyment of the movie to some extent. But uh, it's a really basic premise, and it doesn't offer any, like, answers at the end of it. I hear people saying it's, like, one of the great movies ever made about class. But more than anything, it's just filled with sort of questions and observations than big answers or statements uh, about anything like class or anything like that. Would you agree with that? It's not exactly maybe providing answers. No, it's it, the Paul Schrader wrote on his Facebook page that uh, this was like Louis Bunel meets Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and I've seen people say that it's like the film Shoplifters uh, with some Bunuel and that it erupts into Tarantino at points. Uh, I think those are all fair comparisons, uh, but it's very distinctive on its own. It's definitely a film by Jun Hobong. Uh, I, I, yeah, I just think that the, the more you uh, 
the less you know going into the film, the better. The trailer doesn't give too much away. It's a good trailer. It hints at uh, what's coming, but you're not giving away too much. So uh, I was going to make a comparison, too, with his, uh, one of his earlier films, Snowpiercer. And that's also a class where it's set in the future where there's a, uh, the, you know, the world's basically frozen and people are on a train that go around the world that takes uh, everyone around the world. And as you get farther and farther back in the cars and the train, the, the classes go lower and lower. And basically, that's a film that's talking about class through the compartments of the train car and Parasite's kind of an upstairs, downstairs. I won't go any farther than that, but it's kind of the upstairs, downstairs, satire of class. Is that a good way to put it? No, that is. It's like a, like a very weird Korean 21st century Gosford Park. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, but do you do you agree? You see the Bunuel, uh it, There's there's oh very much Bunuel, so. You know, it, it, like the people replacing, especially later in his career, he had a real, just sort of fixation on not a fixation, but he was very interested in just the way that the the bourgeoisie and the upper class carried themselves, and just you know how they spent their money and what they did with themselves every day. Uh, so very much a Bunuelian, uh and the Tarantino is a good call. It has very much Tarantino eruption of violence uh, at various points. In it. And it has a nice sense of humor throughout it also, especially at the, the earlier parts of the movie. It gains a little more sinister aspects as it continues. But like the first 45 minutes are just like a ride, like a really fun <laughs> time at the movies. And the most of the stuff that happens in that is revealed in the trailer. And so, you know, you wouldn't be giving too much away. But just a really nice setup, and it just sets up everything so perfectly. It really is just a great director at the height of his work, uh, and I'm glad that this movie is getting a lot of uh, uh, play in American theaters and is being responded to so positively from an American audience. Uh, I heard that no South Korean movie has ever been nominated for an Oscar, which seems ridiculous uh, for a nation with such a thriving film industry. But if this isn't the first one to be nominated, I will be completely shocked. Yeah, and it's, I think, very likely that it will get nominated for Best Picture and possibly Best Director. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's getting into that season where we're going to be guessing. I mean, it seems like it's going to be Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese. Those two seem pretty certain. Uh, there haven't been any official reviews yet for Little uh, Little Women, yeah. but it seems quite likely that Greta Gerwig would be nominated for that, be the first woman ever nominated as director. Um, yeah, I just I, I don't want to go on a rant. I so hope Joker doesn't get nominated for more than anything oh, Best Actor, which I don't think even should get nominated for Best Actor. If it got nominated, like Todd Phillips for Best Director, that's not going <laughs> to happen, but it could get nominated. Ooh, what would be picture. really amazing if it was just like these legends that are up there nominated together. We get Martin Scorsese, we get Quentin Tarantino, maybe Terrence Malick is nominated for his new movie, A Hidden Life. And then like the fifth, Greta Gerwig, and then the fifth person is Todd Phillips. So it would just be like, who the fuck is this guy? What is he doing here? <laughs> or yeah, it was like earlier this year when you had Spike Lee nominated for the first time for Best Director. You have two foreign language films in black and white. You have Yorgos Lanthimos, and then you have Adam McKay. And it's like, I really like some of his movies, but it's like, that should have been a woman. It should have been uh, someone besides him. 
but yeah, I mean, the, the best year recently, it was an amazing year, was when it was Guillermo del Toro, Greta Gerwig, Jordan Peele, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Christopher Nolan. That was a great one. That was like everyone, like that was completely legit lineup. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, imagine a field where it's Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese and Greta Gerwig. Who else do you think would make the five? Uh, it depends on Sam Mendes maybe for 1917. Uh, That's the thing. I'm starting to see people on Twitter doing their like favorite movies of the year, and they're including 2019. Like there's so much stuff from 2019 I haven't seen yet. How can I possibly say what my favorite movie is this year so far? Is? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think Greta Gerwig's probably definitely going to be a shoe in. I don't want this to devolve into like an Oscar podcast, but yeah, Greta Gerwig I think's probably shoe in. Scorsese's probably a shoe in. And honestly, I think probably Bong Juno is a shoe in for Parasite, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, but then, yeah, Tarantino for Hollywood. No, I think it's a well, we'll see. <laughs> shoe in, yeah. Shoe in is probably I mean, just Scorsese, wanna, I, probably I just, just Tarantino, and probably just Greta Gerwig. And that's coming yeah, from someone I, I who has yet say to see that Little for Women. my money. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my, as of right now. The Irishman is the best bunch of like win like every category. It should win Best Picture and Director. Uh, um, Joe Pesci should Ford versus Ferrari. Do either of them get nominated? Do both of them? Do neither of them? I don't know. But anything else to say about Parasite? We went into Oscar talk, which we yeah. shouldn't do. Which is not too much and to transition into a movie that I do not expect will be very palatable to an Oscars audience. The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers, who gave us The Witch in 2015, which I have not seen the whole movie because uh, reading the plot on Wikipedia made me have nightmares. Uh, <laughs> this movie, The Lighthouse, starring Willem Dafoe. And I think Ro- it's one of the. <laughs> you can go on. I was just gonna say, I think The Witch is. I was just saying, I think The Witch is like one of the five best horror films of the century. Way up there is like one of the like legitimately best horror films uh in recent years that's that's all i wanted to say it's absolutely worth seeing the whole thing (laughs) maybe i will eventually muster up the courage this one starring willem dafoe and robert pattinson as two men assigned to a month-long shift tending to a lighthouse on a remote island in the north atlantic near new england and they begin to lose their grip on reality as an intense storm strands them on the island for an unknown length of time uh, it premiered May 19th at the Cannes Film Festival and was released wide in the U.S. October 18th, a Metacritic score of 83 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 92. I was very surprised to see the critical consensus be that high because this was one of the more challenging, confusing, uh, <laughs> some of the more grotesque imagery of, of this year. It ranks up there with... Uh, uh, Midsummer and that weird Gaspar No dance movie that we reviewed earlier this year, Climax, as some of the just weirdest, weirdest, most grotesque stuff I've seen on screen uh, yeah, in 2019. Uh, but despite all of that strangeness and ugliness, it is a really uh, just intense, riveting movie that I could not take my eyes off of. And is such an uncompromising vision of just the awfulness of life in the 19th century by Robert Eggers that 
this is going to end up being one of my favorite movies of 2019 because it is so unlike anything uh, that you will find in a movie theater playing anywhere else this year. The Lighthouse is just such a strange movie that it is amazing to me that it is getting a wide theatrical release and people are seeing it. And I just love that that is happening, <laughs> that the lighthouse is being seen by people, and we're getting this very weird Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe performances. Uh, this seems like a movie that is right up your alley. I'm sure you loved it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's one of my favorite films of the year, and you, you use the right term, uh, uncompromising vision. I mean, that director was in talks to make um, a, a film and they were like, can you shoot it digitally and, uh, and so that we can have a color version? He's like, no, uh, I'm shooting it on film in black and white and it's going to be completely on my own terms. I mean, I'm on the side of like directors being uncompromising and doing exactly what they want to do. Uh, I, I have no problem that what makes this film, uh, the production design and the costumes and uh, the cinematography, the black and white, all of that is, is exquisite. But what makes this film for me are the two performances. The film would not work if it weren't for these utterly committed performances. And they're both completely sincere, grounded, like really like actor. Like they're really going for it. And also, they're completely chewing the scenery and having wonderful mm-hmm. fun. They're just, I mean, especially Willem Dafoe uh, yeah. is, you know, he has the, uh, the, the bad teeth and the, the uh, beard and he, and he has the accent and the dialogue. And he's just, I mean, I think he could quite possibly get nominated for Best Supporting Actor because uh, he's been nominated uh, two years in a row now, right, mm-hmm. for Florida Project and then for At Eternity. So, uh, and he's never won. I mean, I don't know that this isn't going to get nominated for like best picture and best director, but I could see it getting nominated possibly for best cinematography. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think the key to this film, as much as I like the, the formal aspects, the cinematic technique. No, I think you're very right to be keying in on the performances. And the performances probably are like the the first thing that should be addressed in any review of the movie, because Robert Pattinson, who this may be the third movie we've talked about him doing this year. He did the first one, Claire Denis, uh, the space drama. <laughs> the name of it I can't think of right now. High Life. High Life. That's it, right? And we talked about him doing the Batman movie earlier this year, and he's just you know something else on the screen. Uh, obviously. And this is a real weird movie that plays with audience identification in a lot of different ways. Because at the beginning, Robert Pattinson, as like the younger person, the movie star, you obviously identify more with his character and are more prone to trusting him. Because like the first 40 minutes of the movie is just like Robert Pattinson having the worst job with the worst boss of all time. And Willem Dafoe is just like constantly, you know, shitting on him and making fun of him for being, you know, a new in the lighthouse industry and not knowing what he's supposed to be doing and basically like ordering him around and making him do all this menial tasks while Willem Dafoe, you know, watches the light and does weird, creepy stuff at night. But then as the movie continues and uh, they spend more time on 
the uh, rock, the island that they're on, because they're in the midst of this intense storm where they can't have anyone uh, <laughs> help them. And Robert Pattinson really starts losing it. And we learned that maybe he's not the person that he has been presenting himself as the whole time. And you start to really question if you should have been identifying with Robert Pattinson and giving him the benefit of the doubt. And then maybe Willem Dafoe isn't as crazy as we were meant to believe because most of the time we were seeing him from Robert Pattinson's point of view. But then 10 minutes later, you're like, oh my God, maybe Willem Dafoe really is as crazy as I thought he was earlier. So it just gets this like... And then you think, oh, so that maybe there's only one person and it's someone going crazy with themselves. Uh-huh. There's that idea I thought of. I mean, there's I mean, yeah, so it, much it going on in it. It's really unbelievable. It's one that I'm sure a lot of people yeah, will walk away from confused by and be like, I didn't like that movie because it you know, made me go to places I didn't want to yeah, go. Yeah, I walked out of the movie. <laughs> After it was over, I was walking out of the theater. I saw it with a group of friends, and there was this older guy, and he said something along the lines of, well, that was something. It was <laughs> like that was his response. But Well, uh, especially yeah. the way it ends, which, you know, we don't want to reveal, but it really is just like, what the hell did I just see? This was so out of the ordinary and different from what you expect going into, like, a Robert Pattinson movie. This is Twilight. This is not. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it has one of the best cuts to the end credits and a song over the credits. That made me smile big time. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, uh, like, I don't think anyone that knows movies can say that Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart aren't like two of the best actors of their generation. And that post twilight, both of them have made awesome, awesome movie choices. And what also really I think have done good auteurs. I mean, a really good job of using the weight that their names have carried as, you know, box office uh, draws that m- people will go see movies that they are in to get financed movies that probably otherwise would not have been, if you know someone with less fame than themselves had been in it like without yeah yeah, i mean exactly like like the lighthouse would not have been seen by nearly as many people if robert pattinson was not in it i can guarantee that right and i think that um you know that that that's the thing i don't understand um like i don't have a problem with an actor doing something like transformers or comic book film but then you got to turn around and do like at least three good movies like like there's actors that they do all these shitty big movies it's like yeah but you got to go do a Coen Brothers you got to go do a Steven Soderbergh film like you gotta you gotta make like get the big paycheck like Holly Hunter like like Holly Hunter shows up in uh Batman versus Superman I think it's like but then she'll go and do uh, you know, something with Jane Campion or she'll do you know, like they'll do that. But or the, she was in the Terrence Malick film song, the song. It's like, but you got to do that. You can't just do junk all the time. I like, think Adam dude, Driver is like, like, like Bruce uh, Willis. Like he'll do every. Yes. Bruce Willis very much is like, a, yeah, I'll just like do whatever. I mean, in more yeah, recent like years, so I feel often, like uh... it's like he'll do 12 monkeys and Moonrise. He'll do 12 monkeys in Moonrise Kingdom, but then he'll do 20 shitty generic action films then like three-fourths of them these days go straight to dvd or barely get released in theaters i mean in more recent yeah. years it's it, right. i guess you'd have to say it's the people who have been in like marvel movies like maybe chris evans like the last sort of interesting movie he got to make was snowpiercer and i think now that 
he's out of the Marvel cinematic churning universe that he's like, he's going to be a knives out coming out this Thanksgiving, the new Ryan Johnson movie. So I think if you had to point to like a new Bruce Willis, the person who, you know, just takes the checks like Robert Downey Jr. Maybe he hasn't been in like a Zodiac kind of movie in a long time. Yeah. No. And I saw an interview with him um, a few years ago. I might've been on Howard Stern where he was basically saying like, yeah, I don't want to make a little low budget movie that I'm not going to get paid very much for. And it's not, uh, you know, it's like you look at his uh, IMDb and it's like, Sherlock Holmes films and the Avengers films, and the only thing he's done in the last five years is The Judge, mm-hmm. which is, uh, but he's going to be in a Doolittle film, Dr. Doolittle. Ooh, <laughs> wow, wow. I'm so excited yeah. for that. If even he would just do like a Shane Black movie yeah. that's outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even doing something like that would be worthwhile of one of like the best well, acting really talents great, of his right? generation. No, I mean, to get back to the lighthouse, anything else, anything? I mean, one really crazy thing I was reading about the production of it is that uh, being in black and white and needing to use the really harsh lighting to get the effects of the lighting on the faces of the actors they wanted, that they were just shining these like unbelievably bright lights directly into Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe's eyes basically the entire time. Uh, And when you're watching the movie, you can sort of get a sense of how bright the lights must have been because it's really harsh black and white photography and the lights on their faces are so like unnatural compared to the darkness around them that I can just imagine <laughs> that it would have been hell for the two actors just look trying to see Willem Dafoe across the table and just staring directly into like this ridiculously bright light <laughs> and there's a scene where Willem Dafoe's character is being buried uh, in some dirt and they were actually throwing dirt on him I mean real. it looks like it in the movie like you it looks like we get a nice pile that goes like straight into his throat and I'm like oh Jesus Christ I can't believe they made him do this this is one of the more like physically demanding I mean, movies it, I've seen of any actor in a long time it seems like Robert Pattinson yeah. like legitimately had to like stoke the flames of a lighthouse fire for like an entire month during the production of this movie right and I think this uh, sits high on the list of films uh, in the last 50 years since black and white pretty much went away that this movie would be completely different if it were in color it would not be the same film no, it, it was perfectly uh, chosen black and white no, the black and white really achieves the effect. It's one of those ones that, uh, you know, just hearing about, you know, a write-up for the movie, The Lighthouse, oh, it's in black and white, you might just think, oh, what, like, a snobby director making a black and white movie. But I can imagine that, like, the vision of the movie he had, you know, when he was writing the screenplay and the product we saw, I mean, there's really no other way for it to have, to have you know, ended up being. The black and white fits the the mood of the movie so perfectly. And the aspect ratio, which is something you sort of forget about while you're watching it, and is obviously very different to a traditional movie theater experience. The aspect ratio is like the one they use pre-widescreen, where they don't use, like, you know, the far right and far left of the screen. It's just a little box in the middle. And it just (laughs) added to this sense of claustrophobia and moodiness in such a special way. It was... Yeah. Really one of my favorite cinema experiences in a long time. It's a movie that just would not have had nearly the same effect uh, watching it at home. And we say that all the time. It's becoming like one of the cliches of this podcast. We say go see it in the theater. But, I mean, this was hey, one of the more... Yeah. I mean, but The Lighthouse is one of the 
like more vital in reminding you like oh movie theaters really are a cool place to see a movie uh more so than most movies i've seen in a long time uh so yeah there's that <laughs> yeah what's ironic the, num- the number one film of last year that if you had to see one film in a theater it would be roma and i would say the number one film this year that you should see in a theater is Irishman, and they're both on Netflix. But you really should go see them in a theater if you can, even though Irishman is three hours and 29 minutes. Uh, we can review that next week because it's playing in theaters near you soon, right? Yeah, that is a, a good way to wrap up this. Yeah, we'll probably be talking about The Irishman in our pre-Thanksgiving episode as I am super excited to be able to see a Martin Scorsese movie opening weekend in theaters. It's a, well, not really opening weekend, but you know, <laughs> it is not going to be very often in the near future. We have a Martin Scorsese movie opening on a Friday night that you can go see. So I am really, really excited about that. Uh, I know you've been hyping it up for a really long time. So my expectations are very, Jojo very Rabbit. high. I've seen Jojo rabbit, which, uh, is one of the more divisive movies of the year so far. Uh, I'll just give a little tease. I love opening it. near me. <laughs> so we'll hear what you think about it. I know you said one of your okay. friends said they I, hated I, it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten very... My, my mom saw Parasite and Jojo Rabbit last night and just said they were both unusual, but I liked them both. I liked them both. <laughs> so uh, my mom gave the seal of approval to both. And my mom hated The Lighthouse. She said more than almost any film she's seen this year, she's, I, I couldn't wait to get out of the theater being trapped. Yeah, well, the director talked about the film as basically what happens if you put two drunk farting men and a giant phallus together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is exactly why I could imagine some people yeah. leaving the theater saying, eh, I don't know if I enjoyed watching that, but it's not a movie, a movie you're meant to enjoy. And that sounds really pretentious to say. But it really is a special movie and is one of the more unique movies to be released in theaters in a long time. But anyway, Parasite and The Lighthouse, two, I think, instant classics, two of what will end up being our favorite movies of the year, I will have to think. And uh, yeah, two really unique visions from uh, two of the more interesting filmmakers making movies today, Robert Eggers and Bong Joon-ho. Joining me now for a special segment to discuss one of the latest offerings from Netflix, The King, directed by David Michaud, who's previously directed Animal Kingdom from 2010. Uh, this movie co-written with Joel Edgerton, who also stars as Falstaff, also stars Timothy Chalamet, Lily Rose Depp, Robert Pattinson, and Ben Mendelsohn. The movie is an adaptation of William Shakespeare's Henriad, in which prodigal son Prince Henry becomes Henry V of England after his father's death. It premiered September 2nd at the Venice Film Festival and was released on Netflix November 1st. A Metacritic score of 61 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 71. Uh, I am joined now by Davis, my older brother, who is an avid Shakespeare fan and was anticipating this movie for some time before it was released. Uh, the floor is yours. What was your impression of <laughs> David Michaud's The King, released on Netflix? Well, I made the mistake of reading a couple of reviews before actually seeing the movie. Um, and it was, you know, I was, I was 
very eager to see the movie the weekend that came out. Um, but I read a couple of reviews and, you know, some of the, when we have an adaptation of a Shakespeare, there's like, oh, it's not true enough to the bard. It's not true enough to Shakespeare. Why did they ruin it by changing it? Um, You know, some other critiques kind of along those lines, and I was like, I don't know. And then I saw it, and I loved it. Um, uh, I thought it was a good adaptation. You know, one of the things that it's so easy to uh, critique a movie for one being historically inaccurate or not a book, right? Oh, the book was so much better. Um, and I think, I don't know, I've taught Henry V, you know, high school students. It's a great play. I think it's got so much, uh, it's so ambiguous about the nature of war um, and power, but a lot of that just doesn't come through on the surface. You really have to, um, you know, kind of pull that out of the text. Where I think the movie makes that pretty straightforward. Um, and man, well, sorry, listen, I'm going to, but. Um, I think one of the things a lot of people didn't like was the change in Falstaff. Falstaff is a very famous Shakespearean character. Carter, do you want to uh, – you can probably fill people in on who John Falstaff is and uh, Henry Adbert than I can. Well, he makes his first appearance in Henry IV Part One, which sort of forms the beginning, maybe 20 to 30 minutes of this adaptation in which Henry IV uh, fells his rival Henry Hotspur in battle. And in this adaptation, their battle becomes literally one-on-one combat uh, in the form of, like... uh, And it was awesome. It was really cool. It was like what uh, Jon Snow proposes to Ramsay Bolton in the Battle of the Bastards. And thought it was sort of a funny companion to that. And we actually see the one-on-one fighting instead of the armies happening in a sort of medieval warfare uh, Netflix show or Netflix movie. But... uh, and in that uh, Henry the Fourth, uh, John Falstaff is the companion of Henry, who sort of represents the vices that he is uh, sort of living with at this time in his life, and is discarded when he becomes uh, King Henry the Fifth of England. And in this movie, Falstaff joins him on his invasion of France, and is uh, one of his more trusted generals, and even gives uh, advice on like the eve of his famous victory at the Battle of Agincourt. So a very big departure from the source material. And what Davis was alluding to, uh, the historical inaccuracies, they are rife in this film. But that does not take away my enjoyment oh, of All it. over the place. <laughs> and I think that the the sort of well, tone the things... and the message and the depiction of the nature of the play and the play's messages, well, not just the play, the whole Henriad and its sort of themes, I think it gets across to a popular audience in a way that very few Shakespeare adaptations uh, actually get to. Because in a lot of ways, by sticking to the source material in the original, especially, like, no, they don't use any of the lines from the movie, even, like, the, or from the plays, even the very famous St. Crispin's Day speech on the Battle of Agincourt, and they sort of make little winks at it in the in the movie itself like timothy chalamet's king henry's like i bet you expect a speech <laughs> which i thought was a little bit funny yeah. so in like by not using uh, any great, of the original lines like it becomes a much more accessible 
uh, adaptation of a Shakespeare text because newsflash, a lot of people have difficulty following Shakespeare, especially if you're not watching a play <laughs> or reading the text in front of you. So it's a real distillation of the ideas in and that way, I think it's very effective. And if it had been just a straight-up adaptation, it would be, you know, nine hours long. And they make it a very manageable two hours and 20 minutes. So for anyone who's saying, you know, it doesn't stick to the Henriette, especially like the famous Let's Slip the Dogs of War, all the iconic lines that come from Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth. Uh, you know, we have our adaptations of Henry V. Kenneth Branagh came out with one. We have one from Laurence Olivier in the 40s. How about we get a different sort of version of Henry V than what we've already gotten before? Well, and they just did one on the uh, the Hollow Crown, mm-hmm. you know? And honestly, the Henry V and the Hollow Crown, I think, kind of sucks. <laughs> um, because it is, it's so true It's to like the a script. stage play. It comes off as... It's like a stage play that's being filmed. None of the action is exciting. None of the stakes seem very high. Uh, And that's a real problem with a lot of Shakespeare adaptations. While this was like uh, Saving Private Ryan set in the 1400s, it was very visceral, very gritty uh, medieval warfare movie. One of the grittier ones, you know, that's come out since like Braveheart or Kingdom of Heaven or something like that. Yeah, and... um... You know, I thought they did cool stuff with the combat. Like, uh, it was much more of like a an MMA era, um, you know, depiction of medieval combat with grappling. Well, I thought they um, very effectively you know, uh, depicted how exhausting it would have been to fight in that much armor. You re- They really emphasized the heavy breathing after like 30 seconds of fighting with really heavy swords and really heavy armor, which I thought was really cool. And a lot of previous depictions of medieval oh, armor. Yeah didn't get across just the endurance it would have taken to fight for beyond 10 minutes in that sort of setting. Yeah, I thought that was, that was great. That's one of the things Bridget, uh, my wife, you know, commented on when we were watching it is all of a sudden they get up from their first grappling session in that battle between Hotspur and, uh, and Hal, and they're just heaving for a second before they go back at each other. Cause yeah, so it felt very real in that way. Another thing I liked about it from a filmmaking aspect, not you know, getting away from the Shakespeare adaptation part, was how like visually dark the movie was when it was inside. Um, you know, I don't know if they actually shot it with like natural lighting only, but a lot of the interior shots reminded me of like a um like a Jan Vermeer painting, mm-hmm. you know, with just the light coming through the window and kind of darkened wood paneled rooms. Um, it, I thought it set the stage pretty cool and um, kept my attention. It's definitely not what we're used to seeing, you know, in action movies per se. But, oh yeah, not especially um, well lit. <laughs> but that re- it was real mood. No, but I the whole movie cool. had a real mood to it, and it really got across the paranoia that uh, Henry is sensing in his initial time as the king and everyone's out to get him. And we get a really nice sort of turnaround at, in the last uh, sort of third of the movie, or maybe even more than that, like the last 20 minutes. We probably shouldn't reveal the exact details of the conversation. Save that for when you watch it. But uh, a real nice flipping on its head of expectations. Uh, but to address the historical inaccuracies, which are rife in the movie, were there any that particularly like annoyed you or did just all of it sort of like water off the duck's back and you enjoyed the movie regardless of any historical inaccuracy uh, that was in the movie itself? 
Um, well, one thing I think is worth pointing out is that the Shakespeare adaptation itself is a huge historical inaccuracy of the actual reign of Henry V. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, last summer I read like a 600-page book just about the year 1415 and Henry's rule, uh, you know, just for kicks. Um, and uh, his brothers, you know, he was the oldest um, as is depicted in the film, but he had three younger brothers who basically just had his back and actually fought with him at the Battle of Agincourt. Well, that was um, the one thing his, for me. You know, bodyguard. And it's not a big spoiler, but they have was, it be that his brother, the Duke of Clarence, dies in battle invading Wales. And for me, that was like, I, I understood why they were doing it to sort of show the stakes of war and, you know, how you can lose you know, even someone as close as your brother, but he's a sort of not a vital character, but not a secondary or tertiary. Here's like a very much main character in Henry V as the Duke of Clarence and historically was very much present at the Battle of Agincourt. So for me, that one thing was a little much uh, to have Clarence killed because <laughs> I was like, you know, kill somebody yeah. else. And it was a little bit <laughs> Don't of kill a... Clarence. Clarence is alive. He was kind of a, and he's uh he's kind of a dweeb in the movie, um, uh-huh. which also makes a good contrast with you know Henry. But yeah, I didn't really I, I saw what they were doing and I was like, eh, okay, whatever. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, yeah, I mean, it, is, it does bring up an interesting point about adaptations and stuff because, um, you know, Bridget was like, well, if it's so historically inaccurate, why don't they just make it? its own thing. Why do they have to say that it's these historical figures? And I've kind of been thinking about that and I'm not sure. I mean, there's like a gravitas to having it be somewhat inspired by real events that you couldn't get if you just kind of made up an original. It has to be the real events. Even being a non-English person, just a lover of English things, I was filled with swelling of pride for the nation of England. Just watching this movie, and I watched on the eve of the World Cup final against uh, the evil South Africa, so it just made me even more inspired and, and filled with love for the achievements of the great England. And, you know, it's not so historically inaccurate that it has no bearing to reality. The spirit of the thing is very much true, and the themes, uh, you know, of yeah. the works by William Shakespeare are very much carried out. Uh <laughs> It's things like, uh, you know, not living, wanting to live up to the crown, not believing that you're that the authority that is vested in you is maybe even something worthwhile in pursuing. A real sort of study in what it's like to be a king by someone who is not an egoist, superpower hungry, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking that they should be king. So very interesting sort of uh, look at, you know. The, the the title of the king itself, which makes it an interesting title for the movie, being called the king and not Henry V or anything else really? like that. But yeah, I, I think it needs to be based on real events. And it, you know, Henry V is a real person and he was young when he became king. You don't have to get bogged down in the facts beyond that. <laughs> he invaded France. True. And <laughs> he won. Um,. <laughs> I did. I really did like the script, and I think even though it wasn't, um, you know, they didn't use lines per se from uh, the Shakespearean text, 
the language was like elevated enough that it felt like it was a Shakespeare adaptation. Uh-huh. Like there's that one line towards the beginning when Hotspur is talking with Henry IV, and he says something like, "Are you to leave our cousin Mortimer in a, a Western dungeon awaiting the torments of Welsh Welsh witches?" Uh-huh. Uh, I, I kind of paraphrased that, but you know, a lot of alliteration, some rhymes sprinkled in. Um, and I, I don't know if this – I think it was probably intentional. And that uh, battle of Shrewsbury where Hotspur calls out Henry V. Why does the little dog bark? Where is the big dog? Do that again for me. You lost connection there for a second. The dogs of war. Okay, so talking about, you know, one of the famous lines that Carter alluded to uh, that actually happens in the Siege of Harfleur in the Shakespeare play is cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. And then in the Battle of Shrewsbury at the beginning of the movie, um, Hotspur, when he goes to challenge uh, Henry V, um uh, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, says, no, you're not going to fight. Uh, get out of here. And then um, Hosper says, why does the little dog bark? Where's the big dog? And then Hal, Prince Henry, you know, they fight their duel. And then after he's victorious, he tells his brother, abandon this havoc. Mm. You know, no, you there were there were a lot of nice know, little uh, tip of the caps and allusions to the original source material. One is, uh, uh, I mean, I wish might as well give it away. It's Falstaff is about to fight in the Battle of Agincourt and says something like, "You know, I could either mm-hmm. die here or I would have died in a tavern in in Eastcheap, and which one makes a better story?" And <laughs> which is a nod to Henry V, where he dies at the very beginning of it, and I think he dies even off stage. Someone like announces Falstaff has died. Isn't that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so giving him a glorious in, death of a in broken battle, heart. Yeah, is a much more fitting way to send out one of the greatest creations of William Shakespeare. So I mean, someone who's uh, known as being one of the great characters up there with like Lady Macbeth and you know Hamlet himself. So it is nice to see such a great character given a, a hero's death and uh, get a, a real nice, uh, not nice, but a nice stature in, in Hal's uh, invasion of France, which would have been cool. It's in many ways, you know, departures from the original material, but uh, like he says, it makes in a lot of ways a better story <laughs> than what Shakespeare gave us. Uh, one yeah, criticism of with, yeah, uh, Timothy Chalamet, who plays the titular king, Henry V, was not convinced by his uh, physique as a great warrior. And that line you alluded to earlier, why is the little dog uh, barking, where's the big dog? I sort of chuckled to myself in that he was referring to Timothy Chalamet as the big dog. <laughs> yeah. They, he could have done a little bit more powerlifting before this movie, that's for sure. That's the thing, though. I don't think he's uh, he's got a body that would even take to lifting. He's just a scrawny, scrawny guy. Yeah, I don't know. They they can put you on a bunch of protein, and, you know, it's pretty crazy what they can do. But 
I mean, he hasn't hit second puberty yet either, um, so it probably would be hard for him to put on muscle. Other but than that, though, it, that's kind of really an interesting good. thing too. The kind of I mean, what were your sort of? How old is Tim- Timothy Chalamet? Early twenties, twenty three, twenty four. We okay. haven't talked too much about his performance. He's kind of got the androgynous a, thing going. As Henry V. I mean, what did you think of him uh, as uh, one of the more famous characters in uh, Shakespeare's many vast array of famous characters? Um, I thought it was good. Uh, definitely got the moodiness, and he. I think if there was one thing that was missing, um, was he never seems to really be enjoying himself that much when he's with Falstaff and his kind of revelry uh-huh. stage. You know, we see him kind of really drunk, kind of dancing one time and kind of just geeking out. Um, but the lightheartedness that Hal has in the Henriad just never seemed present. No, he more just seems uh, um, like depressed, like a depressed drinker. Than yeah. like a, a fun-loving, yeah, lover of innocence and goodness. <laughs> Which, you know, but but Falstaff did seem like that—the mm-hmm. kind of the fun-loving guy—and so it was kind of an interesting partnership where you almost felt like Falstaff was trying to talk him off the edge. And there is a scene where he basically does that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it was much more. I think a play about Falstaff than about Henry in some ways, which I didn't mind. Um, I think especially in, a, you know, the post 9-11, you know, Atlantic world where, you know, we have, you know, throughout most of American history, we don't have times where we have combat veterans that have served for 20 years in combat, right? And uh, Falstaff kind of has that vibe of someone who's seen a lot trying to kick back have a good time and then kind of gets dragged back into it um you know uh yeah to me it just felt like kind of that post 9-11 war movie and Falstaff is you know kind of the dude whereas henry's just the young guy who doesn't really understand what's going on with war so davis going real big picture with his final thoughts on david michaud's the king which seems to be taking over Netflix. <laughs> Maybe you will join us on a future uh, segment of the movie Bratz. Uh, but on your debut, The King, I thought it was a worthwhile movie to discuss. I really enjoyed it. From your thoughts, I feel like you really enjoyed it, despite some uh, criticisms that are definitely merited. Yeah, I totally enjoyed it. I hope it's successful. It's I don't do they track like how many they give their own the internal numbers. Uh, there's no sort of double checking, oh. fact checking service, but you know it'll probably end up being seen by 50 million people. You know, which is much much more than it ever would have been seen by in movie theaters. Uh, so this was probably a good place Man, for it to be. I, I do. Well. One, I want to, you know, last note, one of the things that kind of stinks about movies like this and then Outlaw King is you never get to see them in theaters. Yeah. What are the chances that they do like a release of this in theaters? Zero percent. Like down the road. Zero percent. Oh, my gosh. That's that's the age we live in, but it's kind of you know, I mean you won't these big you won't even be able to buy this never on, see them on the big screen on Blu-ray. This is a Netflix property. 
that's just that's you know what comes with the territory but then again this movie never would have been made without netflix that's the great uh you know <laughs> contradiction of the era the streaming era. Yeah, sure. so you know be glad that the movie was released and be glad you were able to see it opening weekend in the convenience of your own home and still enjoy it you know one would prefer to see this on a big screen but you know you take what you can get i give it two thumbs up Sounds I like just gotta get a bigger screen. Up. <laughs> yeah, stop being a poor person. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that is the king. Thank you for Two listening. Two thumbs up from Davis. You thought the leaden winter would bring you down forever, but you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun. Girl's brown bunny